The saga of church disaffiliations began long before this latest chapter with the United Methodist Church, and there's a lot of case law in America going back more than a century dealing with that. I'm not a legal expert. However, I've talked with legal experts along the way. Uh, on screen, you might see the thumbnail for the interview I did with Mr. Lloyd Lunsford a couple weeks ago, who is an expert on this area of church law around disaffiliations. If you haven't seen that, you should check it out. He he is a good person to consult. Um, a lot of people will remember just more recent developments in the United Methodist Church. The uh, North Georgia Annual Conference froze or indefinitely suspended uh, disaffiliations last year, and then a lot of churches in that conference that wanted to disaffiliate filed against them. And then May of this year, the court... Uh, compelled the annual conference to allow them to go through the 2553 process, which was a victory for people sympathetic to with a worldview like mine. Today, uh, as I'm, I'm reading this, the, the development is that there are 36 plaintiff churches in the Western North Carolina Conference that have reached a resolution which revolves resolves all litigation pending between them by mutual agreement. The churches will disaffiliate under paragraph 2553 of the Book of Discipline, and the conference will work with them through the disaffiliation process so that churches have the opportunity to leave the denomination this year. And that was signed by that, that I haven't found the original document, but I've seen this from multiple angles now. All around the country, uh, through NCLL or other law firms, individual churches and collectives of churches have started filing suits against conferences that have not been very fair in their dealings with churches that no longer want to be a part of that covenant body. Now, in Oklahoma, I uh, have no complaints against the way that the, the conference staff handled themselves with respect to my two small local churches that they were probably happy to, to go without, but I have been covering the way that the conference has treated uh, large, wealthy churches, and in particular, First Church. So this is the thumbnail for the previous video I did going through the ruling uh, when Judge Timmons ruled against the conference. It was called First Church Oklahoma City, examining the judge's ruling. And so in that, um, I did what I'm going to do in this, where I, I went over the uh, actual legal documents in which the judge's ruling, her, her, her way of thinking through these things, was uh, I, I did my best to recapitulate what had been said and done. And I was actually there for that case. I was not able to participate in the proceedings of this case that I'm going to report on today, which was Church of the Servant. Church of the Servant was, is a, a newer church in the annual conference. It was planted uh, three, four, five decades ago. It's outside of Oklahoma City. It's in the Oklahoma City metropolitan area. I've only been there a couple of times. It's a really nice uh, huge modern church. It reminds me of a mall, actually, and it's where our last annual conference was held to uh, vote on the disaffiliations of mine and uh, 40, 50 some other churches. Um, the They had a disaffiliation vote last year in September. I think it was actually September 11th of last year, and it just barely uh, didn't cross the threshold. I think they were missing under 10 votes to uh, disaffiliate, and that after their district superintendent, Sam Powers, uh, said and did a number of things that, well, they were very clear were inappropriate, that, that really dissuaded people from voting to disaffiliate, even if they thought it was in their church's interest. 
Um, so uh, a big thing that's coming to play in a lot of these cases is the role that the district superintendent plays. This particular superintendent, Sam Powers, um, has had a complaint filed against him by another church where he uh, surreptitiously went and presented to a small group in that church without communicating with the pastor at all and has been advocating for measures to shut down any conversation about disaffiliation. So as the judge is going to say in the proceedings here, Reverend Powers uh, has behaved in ways that are just openly hostile to this process, and then to imagine that he can uh, fairly officiate over this process is somewhat fictitious. Um, the particular legal thing at play is under the Book of Discipline, paragraph 248, says that either the district superintendent or the pastor or church board or a majority of the members can call for the church conference that's required in order to begin the disaffiliation process. The uh, chancellor for the conference has argued, uh, it's not just him, they had a whole group of chancellors get together and decide that their legal argument was not that it was uh, either or between the DS or these parties, but the DS is the, the well, Judge Timmons is going to call it the choke point. He or she uh, alone decides whether or not the church can hold the conference, and in this case, it was decided. Now, uh, uh, within 2553, it doesn't say limit how many times a church can vote, but with Church of the Servant, uh, it was decided by the conference, okay, we'll let you vote, you know, and, and they were told as much, you can vote again next year. But the way that they decided to do that was that they would have exactly a year, 365 days before they could vote again. And what do you know it? The cutoff, the last cutoff for the last batch of disaffiliations was going to be September 6th or 7th of this year, and that's a few days shy of the September 11th date that they could vote again. So you see how this works. You know, shucks, we wish we could, you know, help you, but, you know, rules are rules, the rules that we just made up. Uh, and happened to suit us very well. So another thing before we get into this, it's not noted in this document, but I have I've reporting from people who were there. Um, during the first church case, First Church Oklahoma City that went on a few weeks ago, they called a conference official up there who's somewhat of the number two under the bishop and asked him if there had been any conversations about relocating the conference offices because they have this big building right next to Oklahoma City University, which they could sell for millions of dollars while they're having this budget shortfall. And he said they had such had such conversations. However, they didn't prod after that about whether or not they had talked about First Church or Church of the Servant being such a location. So uh, Judge Timmons decided what she did in that case, which, by the way, I think if, if you've been staying on top of that, the judge ruled that they should hold a special annual conference just for voting on First Church, whether or not they could be uh, disaffiliating, and they would have to invite all the representatives from the last conference, even though they disaffiliated. It was, it was an amazing decision. Um, the Oklahoma Supreme Court got involved, and they're going to be uh, hearing the case on the 27th or 29th of this month, I forget, but um, that, that allowed the conference to belay that order and not call that, that special annual conference. So in this case, they also interviewed—that's uh, not the right word, interviewed. They, they, <laughs> it's not interrogated either, but the right word's not coming to me. Um, they, they called another conference official up 
and asked, okay, we know these conversations have been happening about relocating the conference office. Have you talked about relocating it to First Church? And the conference official said, yes. And then they said, have you had the conversation about relocating it to Church of the Servant? And the answer was also yes. And then I don't recall if there was a follow-up after that, but what started to become very clear to the judge and and to everybody in the courtroom was that they were um, capriciously behaving against—well, not capriciously. They were behaving in the interest of the conference against local churches that happened to have assets that they wanted. So it it starts looking pretty icky. So there might there are probably going to be many more details that I remember as I walk through this, but the, the reason I do this is, one, you know, because I have enough insider knowledge to actually be useful and, and put out some good information, but two, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of churches and people that are interested in these questions of what happens when you go to law, and the short answer is, a lot of different things can happen. There's no way to be sure. Different states have different dispositions, uh, either against or toward ecclesiastical authorities. And within the First Amendment is a lot pointing towards the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine. I've talked about that. On doctrinal matters, the state cannot get involved unless there's just clearly fraud. But what is being argued in both of these cases is there's nothing doctrinal about this. This is neutral principles law. This is just contract law, fair play law, uh, which there's plenty of legal precedent of government getting involved there whenever there is a contract at play, say the Book of Discipline in paragraph 2553, coupled with paragraph 248, that's what's going to happen here. So, um, yeah, when you get the courts involved, you know, there, there are some likelihoods you can talk about, but there are so many more factors than can be accounted for um, it, it's it's important to be humble and just say, I don't know what's going to happen as this even unfolds in Oklahoma. It's impossible to say what's going to happen, but especially in other contexts. So um, people have been responding well. I, I, I don't always respond well whenever Christian leaders quote Scripture like they own it and anyone who disagrees with them is a moron. So I, I all along, I know I've been upsetting people that I just haven't taken a strong stand either you got to take these chumps to court, or nobody should ever be taking anybody to court, even though there is scripture about that uh, in 1 Corinthians that's quite harsh. And I have read that uh, once or twice, and you know I've kind of punted on this because, well, I don't need to recapitulate that here. Um, but I, I did want to read scripture for this episode. I haven't read the scripture before, and... Um, so I'm going to read the scripture, I'm going to give you just a little nugget of theological insight, and then we'll go through the ruling. So here's, here's the reading. It's from uh, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus is talking, quote, You have heard it said <clears throat> that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whosoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, 
while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So why do I read that? Well, that last part obviously talks about being taken to court and what you should do, how you should behave with your accuser before you go to court. Now, some might look at this as a scripture against even taking one another to court, and it it probably is that as well, but it's also a warning that if you are behaving unjustly, you need to go ahead and fix that before this appears in a worldly court, because a lot of things can happen that you can't control, and you can end up getting a lot of people hurt. And so as I'm reflecting on this, you know, First Church, Church of the Servant may or may not be right, taking the the conference to court. At this point, my sympathies are obviously with them. I don't know what else they could do. They were entrusted with a, a legacy and a heritage from faithful saints in the past that they were expected to carry forward. The conference was making that impossible, so now they're appealing to someone who has the authority to, to intervene. So I could be wrong on that, but it, in this case, I'm much more concerned about what the conference is saying and doing. And when the conference is behaving unjustly, and whenever they're called out by a worldly authority or people who are uh, pushing back even within the church, it, when their retort is, we have the right to do this, then that is a huge problem. And I've paraphrased several times Paul in 1 Corinthians, all things are lawful to me. And his retort is, not all things are beneficial. You know, Not all things build up. And the fact that the Oklahoma Annual Conference lacks this discernment and that they're willing to bully local churches for self-gain is, um, it's, it's really concerning that people who say they follow Jesus are willing to use this coercive and manipulative power for their own gain at the expense of local congregations that built, maintained, loved, and, and cared for these facilities and these assets for decades before now. So it's, it's um, there are a lot of bad things that can come out of this. You know, there are bad things for the conference that can come out of this that other local churches are having to pay for. There are bad things for other churches if this really does start influencing the way that religious freedom is treated by the state in this country. Then part of that is because of the churches bringing suit. But I mean, how? Okay, uh, how dare you churches bring suit against us when we're pushing you around? Because you stood up for yourselves, now all of us are going to suffer. You should have just taken it on the chin. Um, I don't think we get to say that. Like, yes, there is scripture saying, you know, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? That is there. But if there are Christian entities going around, picking on other Christian entities going, see, I get to wrong you. I get to defraud you because there's scripture against standing up for yourself. I really don't think that is how the scriptures are to be used. I, I would think that that's an inverse antichrist way of using the scriptures. So... Anyway, that's my theological reflection. The rest of this is going to be Judge Timmons' um, actual ruling. I find this very entertaining because Judge Timmons is a very personable judge. I've met a lot of judges over the years. She's my favorite, except for maybe one other. But um, Judge Timmons is amazing. So I'm going to switch screens now and go to the the document. We'll walk through that, and I'll, I'll do a little more commentary. But if you don't care about that, you can tune out now. You can do whatever you want. You don't need my permission, but um, uh, if you stay with me, we'll, we'll have fun. So here we go. So as you see, this was uh, just a few days ago, August 21st. Uh, I forget what today is. It's not the 21st. 
Um, and it's the interesting thing is these are the exact same representatives in the first church case, and this is the same representative of the conference in the first church case, and it's the same judge. So one of the things I hadn't said yet is the conference, whenever they learned that Judge Timmons had been assigned to this case as well, they petitioned to have another judge hear it, but the other judge hadn't done the research, and he punted, and he said, just let Judge Timmons handle it, so they weren't happy about that. Um, so Ken, Kenton Fulton is there. He's the chancellor for the conference as well. So uh, she just gets right into it. <clears throat> Judge Timmons says, well, I've heard testimony and the evidence with regard to the second matter, went back and reviewed the Book of Discipline, Section 248, also the disaffiliation process under 2553, and then the disaffiliation agreement, and there are a number of things that struck this court's attention. When I looked at the decisions that were entered, 1424, and uh, I don't remember the number of the other one, decision number 1425, <clears throat> I didn't find them to be helpful in the analysis in this case with regard to the particular disaffiliation agreement of the Oklahoma Annual Conference. The Oklahoma Annual Conference had the right under both those cases to set forth the agreement that the local church who had voted and had disaffiliation vote that supported disaffiliation, had to sign those agreements in order to complete the process of disaffiliation. Those agreements were drafted by church, the national church and their boards and councils, and they, under 2553, are not contemplated until such a time as there's been a vote and a two-thirds majority of the local churches reach that disaffiliation threshold. And I, under just neutral contract principles, I don't it makes no legal sense to argue that disaffiliation agreement that is unsigned by either of the parties governs 2553 at this juncture. No one signed it. And it may be that they're required to sign it at some point, but we don't have any consent. We don't have a meeting of the minds in regular contractual terms with regard to the disaffiliation agreement. And that analysis doesn't even come into play until after subparagraph 4A has been met. So to argue that it controls in these circumstances with regard to waiting a year makes no legal sense and flies in the face of just basic contract law. But in addition to that, there is testimony that no one else has been subject to a one-year waiting period. So she's referring to treatment that the conference is, is the way that they're wanting to execute this plan and insist that they have the right to. She's saying, well, listen, if you're governed by contract law, and if you haven't read the Book of Discipline, it is very much in the language of a contract. This is in the section that deals with property transfers and the like. She's saying with her legal expertise that she knows how contracts work, and there is no way that the Oklahoma conference is right to get to the, the conduct it's, it's saying is normal. She's saying it is not normal. When you have these words in your contract, they do not imply this behavior at all. There's, there's not a correspondence here. It plainly says the opposite of what you're doing. You're trying to exercise authority in this way before you're even eligible to do it because first they need to have a vote. First they need to sign a contract as to how they're going to do things with you. All right, back to Judge Timmons. She says, and the court has been particularly disturbed in both of these cases with unprecedented action on behalf of the National Church in what appears to be direct contravention of the processes afforded to everyone else who wanted to disaffiliate 
And it seems to have been enacted, and I believe that the proof in this case substantiates the burden that the measures taken with regard to the church of the servant was arbitrary, arbitrary, and was not required of anyone else. And in fact, a church was allowed to vote again within a year. The Gould Church, I believe, was allowed to vote in a year on disaffiliation and was allowed to disaffiliate. So there was an, uh, Gould is the name of the, the city in which this church resided. They apparently took one vote last year and it didn't pass. They were given another vote date in under 365 days that they passed and were allowed to, to begin the disaffiliation process. Church of the Servant, all of a sudden they're going, oh, sorry, 365 days, you're just not going to cut it. She's going, that is obviously, that's hogwash. You're, 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 you're being arbitrary because you, she didn't, she's not saying they want the property, uh, but it, she is saying that they're being treated. If this is a contract, they should be treating all of the churches the same. She's saying you're not treating them the same. You're treating them differently in a way that does not benefit them. Back to Timmons. We also have a process that, to me, is tainted by the stated bias of the district superintendent. So this is Sam Powers that I was telling you about. Timmons says he demonstrated an acrimony and a behavioral antipathy to the disaffiliation process. There was some testimony, and I don't remember it getting run to ground, about him denying the vote of disaffiliation to an Edmund church. Now, there was also some testimony that it was his understanding they didn't really want to vote for it or not, but he testified he doesn't like the disaffiliation agreement. He doesn't like the process, and that for him to be in a position over a church who wants to try to disaffiliate and to use that animus in a way that, to me, is not in keeping with Section 2553 on its face to reach to an agreement no one signed at this point that hasn't even become part of the equation because he won't allow the vote, gives him the right of choking off the rights of the churches underneath him when it comes to disaffiliation. And it is worth remembering that the explicit language of 2553 is that churches have a limited right to disaffiliate. So as she uses that rights language, she is saying that the DS is restricting them from their rights. Timmons continues, and my tone and tenor this entire time has been, if you're going to put a process in place, you got to follow. You don't have the ability to follow some and not others and then reach for other conditions that are not required and have not been required of anyone else except for the church of the servant in this case. I would be remiss if I didn't highlight this is the exact same approach that liberals have to the Bible, the three buckets you got the ones that you like and they're true. They're the ones you don't like, so maybe they were true sometime, not now. And then you got the ones that were never true. Whenever you've got people that treat the Word of God as a cherry-picking exercise, then of course they're going to feel comfortable doing that with American law or any other laws that they come up with. They will just approach any given scenario with, what benefits me? What power do I have? How can I exercise it to my benefit? So this is the kind of mentality that's created with these dynamics of ascendant liberalism gaining control of uh, uh, institutions. So, um, yeah, that's all there is to that thought, I think. All right, back to the document. That, to me, is troublesome with regard to my analysis of whether under neutral contract provisions and policies and law, the church has followed its own dictates. I should come back to this point that she made, which is if you're going to have a system, you got to follow it. And so what, what she's calling them out on is it's not just that you inherited this, but you actively created this. And in the case of First Church, they actively created this process 
for a viability study that then they violated it themselves by not following the timeline and not getting the proper representatives together. Here, similarly, they uh, uh, were given assurances that they'd be able to get a second vote, that they would uh, go through this process in good faith with the conference, and then the conference just welched and they had no recourse, so obviously that's why they're here. But you also see her appealing time, and again, to the neutral contract provisions, policies, law, uh, time and time again saying this is not an ecclesiastical matter. This is this ecclesiastical abstention doctrine does not apply here. This is neutral contract principles. Timmons says, you know, a lot of times when you do contracts, sometimes you look at it later on and you don't like the result of it. But contract law is that you're stuck with that, whether you like it or not. I looked at 2553, and there does not appear to be any limit on the number of times a party or a church can ask to be disaffiliated. It's not in there. And in fact, if you want to talk about the disaffiliation agreement, it in particular lends itself to the interpretation that in its very terms, there is contemplated more than one disaffiliation vote. And that's found on page five, last paragraph of the August 22nd uh, August 2022 version, and also on page six, beginning at the last paragraph on that page, going over into the next page of the June 2023 version that has the one year in it. But even that says that a church can request another conference and vote, but they have to have the approval of in consultation with the district superintendent or until the passage of 12 months. So even that, even though that didn't happen in this case, even that contemplates that there can be more than one disaffiliation vote and it does not, in that paragraph, say you have to wait a year. It's in the disjunctive. It says, or. So I, I wrote that down on the side, disjunctive. And then she turns to paragraph 248, which I already set up a little bit ago. She says, looking at 248, which is the provision that talks about when church conferences can be held, I read it to see if whether or not there was anything in it that said the church council could not call for a vote. And when I looked at 248, it appears that the district superintendent can call for a vote and also the church council. It is also in the disjunctive, and that makes sense because if you had a district superintendent who had an animus towards disaffiliation, they could use their position as a chokehold and that any churches underneath them will not be able to disaffiliate, and that's not the tenor and the tone of section 2553. So I was in the court when she heard the argument from the conference chancellor that, oh, the chancellor... Uh, the, the district superintendent has ultimate authority. It doesn't matter what uh, the church board or pastor does. And, you know, he can, he can schedule it, and then he can cancel it again, and he can schedule it again if he wants. Uh, it, it's totally up to him. And Judge Timmons was just like, that's crazy. That, that makes no sense. If that's how contracts work, then just go ahead and get rid of contracts. And so that's, that's coming back again. They chose to interpret it. The conference chose to interpret it in a way that's very beneficial for themselves, where Essentially, what's happened in Oklahoma is I had a great DS. I really like my DS. He was very fair, but there were eight DSs, two of whom are pretty much just rabid dogs, Sam being one of them. He, is, he, he operated with impunity. He did what he wanted, and whenever people filed charges against him, the bishop just dismissed it and said the DS has the right to do whatever he wants. And so you have DSs, some of whom behave fairly, others uh, behave, I mean, very reprehensibly, and the bishop has refused to to require any standard of, of morality there. Maybe he's dressed him down behind closed doors, who knows, but there hasn't been any kind of um, 
action on the part of the bishop or conference staff to say, hey, somebody else should be doing this. They just kind of let this guy run wild. And this is what happens when you let a rabid dog run wild is bad things happen. I know he is, this is a metaphor. He is a human. He's made in God's image. I'm sure he's lovely to his family and friends. I'm sure he's a great guy to have a beer with. But in this particular case, his misbehavior resulted in this. So um, let's get back into it. So in order to read paragraph 248 and 2553 in conjunction with each other and to give full force and effective to both, 2553 would have no ability to be applicable if you had a district superintendent who just said, I'm never going to call for a vote. I'm not going to allow you to do it. They could choke out disaffiliation for the entire district by doing that. I don't believe that's what's uh, contemplated under paragraph 2553, reading them both together. There's also some evidence that the date for the deadline of the submission of documents and the paperwork necessary for the disaffiliation to be presented at the annual conference was moved up earlier than previous years. And I heard that there were reasons for that, but to me, if those reasons are adequate and the church has the right to do that, the timeline is suspect because it conveniently is set at a time that if you put the year timeline in place means that this church will forever be unable to vote on disaffiliation and go through the process. It completely cuts them out of their ability to disaffiliate by setting the date on that date. So we already covered that. It, it, it blocks them out of the second vote by like six days, which is cruel. <laughs> so she, she saw that. Timon says, you know, I don't know if that's what the church did, but that's the effect of what they did. And the vote to disaffiliate is the choke point. It's a choke point in these cases, in both of these cases, she means the first church uh, case as well, for either the church's right to vote on disaffiliation or not. That is significant to me. And when they set that date with this disaffiliation prior history, it was significant that no one talked to the church council about it. The people who were the ones who called for it to start out with, but setting about setting a date that significantly and unalterably kept them from voting on whether they wanted to leave or stay. When I talked, when I asked, I asked a couple of questions and listened for the answers and then listened to the testimony. The only two cases where the superintendents failed or delayed the vote on disaffiliation has been Church of the Servant and First Church. The only two. I don't believe that's a coincidence. Now, something I will say is, I've been in these circles as we've been watching the disaffiliation. I'm not watching as closely now as I did back when my churches were some of the churches disaffiliating, but these are not the only two churches where there have been significant hurdles placed in front. It was real easy for my churches to get out. We didn't even have to state our reasons as to why, our reasons of conscience to get out. Uh, meanwhile, at the exact same time, there were churches that were being required to submit these reasons, and the reasons were being sent back saying, not sufficient, we're not going to allow you to vote. So some DSs have made it very difficult for churches to move through the process. Others have been much more fair. Even so, there is a level of coercion and manipulation that it is true that the conference only got to this level of dishonesty and manipulation with these two churches. And so I, I don't think Timmons is wrong. I just think it, it fails to appreciate just how underhanded a lot of this has been. This is not the only conference that's like this. Um, but you should feel a little sorry for Oklahoma. They really are having a lot of attention put on them. Uh, John Lomperis just happens to be targeting them at the same time, pointing out 
that they've gone quite liberal as well. He's focusing on gay weddings that have been performed by United Methodist clergy and and the the lack of discipline here. So a lot of a lot of attention on Oklahoma right now, as there should be. I think there should be more attention on every annual conference. It's just going against, you know, for so long the culture was we can trust these people. And I, I think, um, you know, the I, I think I've said it before. If you don't learn the lesson that you shouldn't trust people from this, then you're not paying attention. There are things that are unique about the United Methodist Church that are particularly troublesome. But if you imagine that going to the Global Methodist Church, you can just trust everybody in authority, well, you need to learn your lesson. You know, the whole point here is you need transparency and you need accountability. And if you don't have these things in place, there will be abuses sooner or later. And yes, it's always the abuser's fault. But even so, if you're not demanding trans, trans, transparency and accountability, then you are partly to blame. All right, we need to get back into this document. Um. Timmons says, I believe that the disaffiliation under 2553 has been frustrated by the actions of the National Church and the Oklahoma Annual Conference. They're the parties that drafted the disaffiliation agreement. The National Church was involved in the Section 2553 disaffiliation and by its very terms seeks to allow people to leave without the things that I've seen go on in these court proceedings. It was specifically drafted to allow churches to leave if they so choose. chose. That purpose has been frustrated. Court finds that irreparable harm will be the result if a temporary restraining injunction is not enforced or is not granted because Church of the Servant will never be allowed to vote on the disaffiliation if the respondent's actions are not enjoined. I also, based upon the law and the facts in the case, believe and think that there is a likelihood that the petitionary on the temporary restraining order will have success on the merits. So the court's ruling with regard to the injunction is that the Church of the Servant be allowed to vote on the disaffiliation as contemplated under Section 2553, and as a result of the request of the Church Council that has not been acted on in a manner that would allow them to vote prior to September 6, 2023, so that they may be ready and able to participate in the disaffiliation process on or before that date. So essentially what she's doing there, she's mandating that the conference is saying they got to wait 365 days. She's saying, no, they only need to wait 355 days. You're going to give them this vote prior to the cutoff date. So far, I think that's all she's really saying. Um, okay, Dibbins says, and we'll find that the church council also has a right under 248 to call a vote on disaffiliation because 248 in conjunction with 2553 lends credence to the fact that the church council can call the vote for disaffiliation along with the district superintendent, especially in this case where I find that the disaffiliation process was tainted by the animus of Reverend Powers or Dr. Powers, who has demonstrated history and who testified that he is not in favor of disaffiliation and does not believe that the agreement or the process is something that he thinks, I'm saying loosely, should not happen and shouldn't be done. So she's also um, very firmly telling the church how it should be interpreting paragraph 248. So far, the denomination in the U.S. has chosen to read it in such a way that the DS can serve as a choke point. That's the word she used to keep the vote from happening. She's saying, no, no, no. When these two are used in conjunction, it's clearly meant to make it to avoid a choke point. You're inverting the whole purpose of it. You're going to have to apply it this way. So what I wonder is if other justices in other states are going to look at that ruling at all 
and consider that as well. I, I just wonder how big a role that's going to play. Timmons says, he testified, she's talking about uh, the DS, uh, Sam Powers, in essence, to that on the witness stand. So his being a district superintendent over Church of the Servant at this particular time has tainted the process in a way that has made his denial of the request for a church conference to vote on disaffiliation arbitrary and not in keeping with both 248 and 2553, the Book of Discipline. And I also specifically find that the disaffiliation agreement, in terms of its tenets regarding the process, does not come into play until after a vote has been done, and disaffiliation has been approved by two-thirds of the church, the local church. And so, while it may be instructional after disaffiliation has been voted on and two-thirds have voted to disaffiliate, it does not govern under 248 and 2553, the process prior to that time, and that's contemplated in section 2553 of the Book of Discipline at subparagraph 4. So that that came into play in the first church where they were trying to get him jumped through all these hoops before they'd even let him take the vote. She said, no, 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 you can put hoops after the vote, but not before. The, the language of 2553 does not allow that, so you, you need to read your own contract, she's saying. Um... Timmons says, and I also, uh, wait, 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 did I already? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so uh, Timmons says, and notwithstanding the two opinions, I'm still, I still don't know whether subject to final editing with regard to both of those means that they're final in such a way that they inform my actions in this case, but even if they are final, I do not find them to be helpful or instructive with regard to 2553 in this particular case and particular issues that have been found to have occurred in this matter, and that's my ruling. Then she says that she's required to set bond in this case, and I asked about this, uh, and I'm, I'm not going to look at the, the, the document anymore. It's still interesting after this, but long story short, she sets a $300 bond in this case, and I'm still not exactly sure how that works as something to do with maintaining the status quo and awaiting um, a later injunction by the court. Or This is, this is an area of law that I'm I'm not familiar with or comfortable talking about, so uh, just allow me to excuse myself from that. The second half of this whole document is her chewing out the conference counsel, uh, Mr. Plurid, of I forget how he says his last name. He's he represents the largest law firm in our state, by the way. That's that's who the conference hired. He apparently in the filing for the first church case made. Um, insinuations about the poor perf uh, performance of Judge Timmons' court reporter, and man, she took issue with that here. It's all in writing. She's chewing him up one end and down the other. This whole time in both cases, I've never seen someone behave the way that this lawyer behaves. Well, okay, I can't speak to the second case. The f well, no, in, even in here, he's, he's behaving in such a way where he's... I've never seen someone act this way as an adult. I, I don't know what's going on with this guy, but he makes it so hard for her to like him. <laughs> and so, man, I, you, the con I wonder if the conference would have done better with a different lawyer, you know, but it, it is what it is. I mean, it's, it's worked out the way it has, and I'm not upset about it. Um, I did see the um, response from the conference, and I got it emailed to me. I could, I could show it. I could read through it, but this is already long enough. The conference really doesn't say anything new. You'll remember they did mail out a response to Judge Timmons' last ruling with First Church. They do pretty much the same thing here, insisting, hey, we were within our rights. Judge Timmons has no right to rule on an ecclesiastical matter 
uh, we're being compelled to do stuff we don't want to do. And then the undertone of it being, you should resent the state and refuse to give them their way in what they want to do. So they're setting the stage. Even with these two small victories with First Church, part of the reality is that the conference is creating great antipathy towards these churches by sending out these letters in the tone that they do without any humility at all about, hey, we might have interpreted these words wrong, and it's helpful. It's been helpful to have American uh, uh, legal experts get involved and, and help us see that we're reading this wrongly, we're reading it too favorably on our end, and we might be trampling upon the rights of local churches. You would expect a, a church body, if it follows Jesus, to have some of that humility and go, uh, uh, we could have been mistaken on this, but they're insisting, nope, this is an ecclesiastical doctrinal matter, and uh, the state has no right to get involved. So they're set, laying the stage for a very acrimonious um, next conference gathering where they are looking at potentially not ratifying the disaffiliations of a couple dozen churches. Other interesting development, man, if you held on this long, this is an interesting tidbit. This last week, Mosaic Church in Oklahoma City voted to disaffiliate. This is a far-left progressive church. This is a church that is disaffiliating because they are impatient with waiting on the denomination, and they think even after uh, the progressives grab control of the denomination next year, it's still going to be way too slow and providing for the rights of, of all gay people. So they want out now so badly that they were willing to pay money to get out. So essentially what's going to happen at this next conference coming up in a couple months, maybe not even two months, is there's going to be a slate of churches that comes to be voted out, and whether or not they allow them to take out one or two churches to vote on separate from the slate is a question. But they're going to be looking at potentially withholding all of the churches or withholding just a few. And if they're going to withhold the liberal one and say, no, 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 just hold on a bit longer, uh, they're certainly going to want to withhold First Church and Church of the Servant, because if they lose those churches, not only do they lose a place for conference offices, they also lose easy places for assembling for annual conference in the Oklahoma City area. So there are a lot of, well, really, they're just worldly motivations at play uh, within the state, within the conference, and then you have just local church conscience on the part of disaffiliating churches, and then those churches coming together to vote on if they're going to let them go, some of them are going to be motivated by what's the truth, uh, what does righteousness require, and then some are going to be motivated by this is my institution, this is what I've given my life to, I'm not going to let these people take apart what we built together, they can't leave their money and their assets are ours. And I'll tell you, if it gets to that point, it's going to be bad. And I don't, I don't want it to happen anywhere. I don't want to happen in Oklahoma, but I'm really worried about what's going to happen at the end of this year when uh, I don't think Oklahoma is the only place going to be dealing with this. So as always, be in prayer for the United Methodist Church and its leaders that they can sober up and realize what's important here. Be in prayer for the local churches going through this acrimony. It really depletes and depresses a church to be in this sort of situation, so they need to remain firm and stand together. Uh, there's a lot more could be said, but I've said enough today. I, I I enjoy doing this stuff. I hope you enjoy walking through this stuff with me, and uh, I'm being serious when I ask you to pray uh, with me, so go ahead. As soon as this ends, don't watch the next video. Just go ahead and pray, and uh, I'll see you next time.